welcome to the Pitbull Patty Show. I'm your host, Patty Stuckler. We're keeping it real here with straight talk and sharing true stories that will inspire you to change your life. Are you ready for this? Because here we go. In this episode, you'll learn about ovarian cancer. You'll learn the signs and the symptoms, and you will be truly inspired by my guest today on her journey of how she dealt with the loss of her mother to ovarian cancer. As a life coach, she's taught thousands of people over the past 20 years or so on how to use humor to transition through really tough times in your life and rediscover your purpose. She's a comedian. She's an author. She's a speaker. Her book is titled, When I Die, Take My Panties, (laughs) and it chronicles her journey through the loss of her mom. It's such an honor and a privilege to introduce my guest today, Jennifer Koken. Welcome, Jen. Hi, Patty. (laughs) Thanks for having me. It's so good to be here. It's great to see you, (laughs) live and in person. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Well, I'm just so excited to have you on because I know this is such a serious topic of ovarian cancer and such an important topic for all women like us. But before I get into talking about that, I really want to share with, you know, with our listeners that you and I have a lot in common. And then we have some things that are not in common. The things that we do have in common are that you and I are both fairly politically active and you more so than myself on a local state and national level, I should say. And myself just really on a local level, very involved in, in politics myself. But we are on completely opposite ends of the spectrum. So I want to bring that up today because I just, every day, like you, I'm sure you experience the same thing. You know, you you are around a lot of like-minded people, and that's who you talk to probably, you know, the majority of the time. But I really wanted to bring this up because I just get so frustrated with people that it's like you can't be friends. And you and I are friends. I respect and admire you greatly. And I really don't care that we don't agree on politics. And we couldn't be further, I I can't tell you, we couldn't be further, I think, from the political spectrum from each other. Everything from abortion to, you know, lots of other things. But what is really cool is when you you have friends, you accept that you you do not agree politically, but it doesn't stop you from being friends and really enjoying each other's company and learning so much from each other. So I really want to know kind of your thoughts on that topic just briefly before we get into really what what I want to talk about with ovarian cancer. But do you agree with the fact that so many people, it seems like they cut off half the population when they shut down communication with people who don't agree with them politically? I, I think it's ridiculous. And it's actually, you know, on Facebook, like I've posted things on Facebook and people have commented and I'm fine as long as it is a respectful, thoughtful dialogue. You know, my ex-husband was on completely the other political spectrum than I am. Some of my best friends are completely on the other political spectrum in more ways than one. But we have thoughtful dialogue. Well, why do you think about that? Why do you think why do you think this way? Why do you think that way? And I think that's the only way we can learn from one another. I may not agree with you, but if I understand where your views come from. And I already respect you as a person. I already love you and think highly of you. But if I had a thought or a question, well, tell me how you came to that conclusion, why you believe that way. And and I could say the same thing to you. Then we can respect each other and respectively agree to disagree. And I'll tell you, you know, I used to work on Capitol Hill and I was brought to D.C. by two members of Congress, one a Democrat, one a Republican, to start something called the Congressional Hunger Center. And we were 
ending hunger by developing leaders. And my direct boss was head of the Select Committee on Hunger, which was done away with by the Democrats who came to town. He happened to be a Democrat and it was done away with by the Democrats. And Tony, a very religious man, born again Christian, went on a 23 day hunger fast, just like in the Bible to understand what did God want him? I know we weren't necessarily going down this way, but oh, there we go. Yeah. You know, what did what did God want from him to do about the hungry children, about hungry elderly people? And he felt God spoke through him. And so he fasted. I fasted with him for five days. And that's how he hired me. Well, one of the things for me is that feeding hungry people doesn't have a political label. We care about the poor. We care about people who are hungry. We care about the elderly. We care to see people treat each other with kindness and, 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 and with humility. And we ourselves want to be humble. There's so much that we have in common. And it's so much more fun, honestly, to talk about the stuff we have in common than the stuff we don't. And I find I get in the best conversations with people who are on the opposite end of the aisle for me because I don't care. You're a person. I'm a person. Let's have a dialogue. I have unfriended people on Facebook, both sides of the aisles, because I didn't like the vitriolic speech that they engaged in. And I felt it was very disrespectful. I've deleted their comments. And they've, you know, said to me, why did you do that? Because I felt like you were beating somebody up instead of being respectful of their viewpoint and your viewpoint. And that's the piece that really gets me is people don't respect each other's viewpoints. We may not, we may not agree, but we're both human. And it's not as if, you know, you're thoughtful, I'm thoughtful, you're educated, I'm educated. We came to these conclusions for a reason. Okay, so how come? Yeah, you know, it's like lately I feel like people have lost their freaking minds. They're just, (laughs) their heads are about ready to blow up, you know, blow off their head. I I just don't understand it. And that this has been, this isn't necessarily, people think it's just happening now. It's been happening. I mean, it's It's been been happening the last 10, 15, 20 years, really, you know, escalating. It just keeps ratcheting up is what it looks like to me. But it didn't just start. I mean, it's, it's been happening and on both sides are guilty yeah. of it and it just find it so crazy. And in fact, I, I find it just really depressing. So it, it makes me not want to even talk politics very often or watch as much news as I used to watch, which is unfortunate because I love the news and I'm a news junkie and I really, and I like to debate. I like to have conversations and maybe change some hearts and minds or maybe they could change my opinion. But you got to be able to be free to talk and not have a scarlet letter of a D or an R, you know, on your forehead when you're talking to somebody. Exactly. You know, and, and you know, it's funny because growing up, I don't know if you ever watched, did you ever watch the McLaughlin group? Yeah. With John McLaughlin? Yeah. yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. I'm like, it's way back. I think it's, I hear it's coming back. But that show, for anybody who hasn't seen it, it's John McLaughlin was a host and he had two Democrats and two Republicans as guests. And then they would have like issue one was like the first 15 minutes, issue two, the second half of the show. And and then it was just it was really cool because I loved that. And I grew up on that. I grew up listening to not one voice, you know, both sides. And I have very strong opinions of my own. Trust me. But, you know, you got to hear both sides to be intelligent and not just be listening in an echo chamber. And I've often thought what would be a really cool show, and maybe you and I could do this someday, a really cool show would be like to host and have two Democrats, two Republicans, but like in a pub, you know, like in a bar setting. And then like, and then like kind of discuss the issues, you know, while having drinks, being friends, cracking up, hopefully part of the time without throwing drinks at each other. And then, and then at the end, maybe find some common ground where everybody could take a shot. 
I love it. We don't have to call it a pub crawl. We'll call it a pub draw, and we'll talk like this for the entire time. <laughs> so you're on board with it. I'm totally on board with it. Yeah, I co-host it with you or something. You know, and we'd get two Dems and two Republicans, and we'd we'd have to be like the moms and tell people to go sit in the corner if they got out of hand. You're in timeout. You're in timeout. Throw, throw peanuts at them or something. I yeah. Know. I like to take the shot at the end. Yeah. Everybody. Yeah. You only, you only get to take a shot if you can find some common ground, though. Yeah. I love it. So I love it. Anyway, but anyway, getting to a more serious topic, take us back to really when you found out your mom had cancer. Yeah, it was August of 2006, and she had been not feeling good for probably about a year. She, you know, when I went to, I remember going to visit her in April, my mom never had a belly in her life. I'm built very much the same way. We've got hips, no belly, you know, just runs in the family, lucky us. And her belly was super bloated and she was in a lot of pain and they've been trying to figure out, was it irritable bowel syndrome? They were treating her with candida. You know, she was very much a, a really healthy person. So she was trying different ways of eating and different supplements and all these things. And finally, her gynecologist said, well, let's start with having a hysterectomy because she had had issues when she was a kid or when she was younger, like in her 40s after she had my brother and I. And she might have had fibroids at the time. And the idea was to go remove things to see if that gave her some relief. Well, it was when she had that surgery, her gynecologist was doing the surgery and her oncological surgeon who became her oncological oncological surgeon was next door doing another surgery. And my mom's doctor went into him and said, can you come take a look at that? And sure enough, she had what was ultimately stage four ovarian cancer. It was all in the peritoneal sac. And she had a couple spots on her liver too. So whenever a cancer goes to another major organ, it's stage four. And at that point, she had less than a 30% chance of living five years. Wow. It's pretty devastating. Oh. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to crawl in a corner. I couldn't believe it. My aunt had called me and said, your stepdad doesn't want you to call your mom. And I said, F you, I'm going to call her. And my mom was amazing. You know, she was still on morphine. And I said, do you want me to fly out? What do you want me to do? And she said, honey, we don't know exactly what's going on yet. So there's no reason for you to come. And I was leading these big personal growth and development seminars. She goes, go make a difference. Go, you know, be with the people in that seminar. And then when we know what's going on, then we'll know what the next actions were. She was so level. She was always so level headed. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. What happened from there? Once once she was diagnosed, how long did she have? What what was that journey? Well, it was interesting. You know, she had such a great attitude when we found out that she had less than five years to live. She had a thirty less than a thirty percent chance of living five years. She said, Why can't I be part of that thirty percent? And she actually lived five years, one month and eight days. Super stubborn, not ready to go. They did the surgery. Once she healed from that, they began chemo. She went into remission for about a year and, you know, God love her. She was able to come to my wedding and dance to my wedding, dance at my wedding at the time, which meant the world to me because, you know, she couldn't travel. I was going to see her. And then about a year later, she had a reoccurrence. And what happens with ovarian cancer and why it's so hard to diagnose, and this is so important, Patty, and why I'm so thankful that you're having me on your show, because I, I think you have a lot of female, female listeners out there. There's no test for ovarian cancer. A lot of women think your pap smear is your test for ovarian cancer. It's not. That is a test for cervical cancer. And the reason there's no test is there's 23 types of ovarian cancer. 
We have a test for prostate cancer because there's one type. We have a, you know, a mammogram for breast cancer. There's no way to discern ovarian cancer. That's why my mom was misdiagnosed. Now, in retrospect, what I know now, she was, she was showing classic stage one symptoms of ovarian cancer. And if a woman has these four symptoms all at the same time for two weeks straight and no change in diet or exercise makes any difference, they've got to go to their doctor and say, their gynecologist, not their PCP, but their gynecologist and say, prove to me I don't have it. So if they've got bloating, what woman doesn't get bloated every month? You know, if they're having problems eating, feeling full too quickly or not as hungry, if they are having abdominal pain or if they're having trouble urinating or going to the bathroom more frequently or feeling like their bladder is still full, even though they've gone, the constellation of those four symptoms is usually pretty much stage one, stage two ovarian cancer. And that's what my mom was showing at the time. But we didn't I knew nothing about ovarian cancer before she was diagnosed. And now. I mean, fortunately, unfortunately, I know too much. I know of three women who were diagnosed stage one after listening to me on the radio or, or you know, reading my book or, or hearing me talk, which is why it's so important. I'm so thankful that you've, you have me on your show today. So those symptoms, those four symptoms, I would imagine hearing those symptoms that most women probably would go to their primary care physician, not their OBGYN or, or their you know gynecologist. Right. And so what, what do those primary care physicians, do they tend to know to check? Usually not. Usually not. And that's part of the problem. Now, a couple of things. You should know that primary care physicians have seven minutes to see you. Even though they've got you on the schedule, whatever time they've got you, they literally have seven minutes. And we as women, we like to tell stories. You know what I mean? So like, oh, I had this, I had that, and then I had this, and I had that. So two things for people on my website, jenkoken.com, they can download a symptom card and keep it for themselves or hand it out. And they can also download a symptom tracker. What you wanna do is track your symptoms for two weeks. So when you go in to your PCP or your gynecologist, you can be very factual. I've been bloated eight days out of the last 14. I had problem eating this much. It has a place where you put an X where you're feeling the pain, et cetera. Most PCPs aren't thinking about this. That is not their first line of defense because, quite honestly, ovarian cancer is not that common. The problem is it's the deadliest of all the gynecological cancers. 12,000 women a year die from it. Most women who get get diagnosed are diagnosed late and die from it. It's really rare to be diagnosed early. And so you've got to be your own best line of defense. Even myself, who knows all these symptoms last year around this time, I looked like I was three months pregnant. I just thought it was middle age. I'm like, oh, great. I hit 50 and that's it. Splat. There goes my belly. I'm going to have a belly. You know, mom's not alive to ask her about it. What did this happen to her? When I finally went into my gynecologist around, I think it was March, because I wanted to have a hysterectomy just in case. I, you know, my mom was negative for all the different tests. And I'll talk about those in a minute. I was negative. I thought, you know, let me start the conversation now. And my gynecologist said, look, you know, you've had fibroids for three years. So insurance won't cover it because your mom insurance will cover it because you have fibroids. As soon as she said that, I put two and two together, Patty, and I realized I'd been bloated for months. I was feeling full after eating. I couldn't go to the bathroom all the way. And I was having lower back pain. So it can be abdominal or lower back pain. 
After she told me this, I swear to God, my belly like blew up. It was as if my body went, yay, we're finally going to be taken care of. I went to yoga and I went to do downward dog. And I had ultimately found out I had a fibroid the size of a grapefruit on my right ovary. I could feel that as I was doing downward dog. I could feel that side of my belly hitting the mat first. And when my uterus was eventually taken out, most uteruses are 60 grams it's either 60 or 80 grams. Mine was 187 grams. I lost wow. 10 pounds oh my just by having that surgery. Wow. wow. So we have to be really vigilant about listening to our bodies and making sure our doctors listen to us. Yeah. And I, I can imagine there'll be a lot of women who will listen to this episode and can relate to all those types of things, fibroids and, you know, polycystic fibrosis, all those types of things that people experience. And, and it is one of those things that you don't know. There's so many things, like you said, there's just so many different types, so many different kinds of things. And unless you really are paying attention and aware of what to look for, you know, somebody else like the physician isn't necessarily going to know to look to test you. There's a great group called the Ovarian Cancer National. Well, it's now the Ovarian Cancer Research Foundation Alliance. There's two big groups. That's one. And the other one is National Ovarian Cancer Coalition. But Ovarian Cancer National Research Foundation Alliance has a great project called Survivors Teaching Students, where ovarian cancer survivors go talk to medical students about what to listen and look for. And that's important because most docs would miss this kind of thing. And in fact, you know, I know of an 18-month-old baby that has ovarian cancer. It's a particular type of germ cell cancer that happened in the womb. I know of a woman last year, she was going through her seven-year-old daughter has ovarian cancer. And I know of young women in their late teens in college who have ovarian cancer. They're not worried about whether they're going to graduate or what their major is. Their worry is, how do I tell my date when I can't have kids? Do I wait until we're in love? Do I stay on the first date? Like, when do you break the news to somebody that, by the way, at this stage in our lives, when we're thinking about that next chapter, that getting married, raising a family, we'd have to adopt because I physically can't because I've had a full hysterectomy at the age of 17 or 18 or 16 or whatever it is. And and my personal mission is to end the late stage diagnosis of ovarian cancer. And I need your help and everybody's help to educate yourselves and educate each other about this horrible disease. Well, I, I, I'm sure most people like myself had no idea that a baby could have ovarian cancer, that a little girl, that a teenage girl, you always think of, I mean, I would, in my mind, I would always imagine a middle-aged woman or close to it even Or an older woman. So that's fascinating. And it's such a good thing to tell so many people about just to create the awareness of it. Because it's, you know, like you said, it's not that common, but yet it is the most deadly. So yeah, and most women over 60 are usually diagnosed with it. But as you said, it's also common for younger women and kids to be diagnosed too. It's not, I should say it's not uncommon for that to happen. And it's interesting because one of the doctors that I do some work with and some press appearances with, he was doing some research about ovarian cancer and discovered 10-year-old research that shows that ovarian cancer doesn't start in the ovaries. It actually starts in the fallopian tubes. So his, you know, he and I are on a mission to rename it. But what's most important about that is targeted immunotherapies can be targeting the fallopian tubes 
and not the ovaries. What that means is you're going to have better targeted treatment, but also for those young women who are perhaps so if you're BRCA1 positive, BRCA stands for breast cancer. Many people are aware of that because there's so much awareness around breast cancer. If you're BRCA1 positive or BRCA2 positive, you're up to 40% more likely to get ovarian cancer. If you're Ashkenazi Jewish, you're 10 times more likely to get ovarian cancer because, and I'm an Ashkenazi Jew, that sect of Judaism was founded by four founders and people eventually started, they were marrying each other to keep within the faith. So we kind of mucked up the gene pool, to be honest. But what's important about this discovery is that when women are diagnosed later in life, they could get their fallopian tubes removed and they're not sent into menopause prematurely, which means a reduction of heart disease and a reduction of osteoporosis. If a young woman is found because maybe her mother or mother had breast cancer and she was tested positive for BRCA1 or 2, she also could prophylactically be able to get her fallopian tubes removed and not her ovaries or her womb and be able to still conceive kids naturally or through in vitro fertilization. Obviously, if you have your fallopian tubes removed, they're not going to populate the ovaries, but you could harvest the eggs and then through in vitro carry your own child, which is great, you know, in a different future for, for women down the road. Wow. Yeah, ab- absolutely. It is a fascinating topic, but I'm really curious because it is such a serious thing that we're talking about life and death here. How do you find the humor in this whole journey? And, and also where did the title of your book come from? Yeah. Well, let me say one thing first is that if a woman has these symptoms and goes to her gynecologist and says, prove to me, I don't have ovarian cancer. The question then is what can they do? They can do a transvaginal ultrasound. They can do an MRI Basically, the only way to tell if it's ovarian cancer is to type the tissue ultimately. But you want to keep pushing your doctor. And we as women are very intuitive about our bodies. You have to trust yourself. If you think something's off, it probably is. So keep pushing at your doctor until she can prove to you you don't have it. You know, I, as, as a comedian and my mom was a performer too. I mean, she was a scientist at NASA and she was a, an educator but she also had a really wicked sense of humor. And so she is the one who told me to take her panties. That's, <laughs> that's where the title of the book comes from. She about, I don't know. Well, first of all, this is the kind of person my mom is. I have a burial plot. Why? Because they were on sale. She bought three. She got one free. She gave me one for Hanukkah. I, I have it. a burial plot. This is not a joke. This is serious. So if I want to be buried, I can be buried next to her and my stepdad and my uncle's family cemetery in Rhode Island. Okay. Oh, it's very thoughtful. Very thoughtful. <laughs> it's like the, the year when I was in college and she gave me pots and pans and I nearly cried because she was being practical. That's, you know, <laughs> practical. About a month before my mom passed, I was visiting her. We had a usual thing we did at Christmas. Her birthday is December 23rd. I would spend a week with her on my birthday. I would also spend a week with her. And so I was visiting her and she was, it was kind of surreal. She was taking me through her things and showing me jewelry she wanted to have and showing me a dress that she wanted me to have and a fur coat that my grand, my grandfather was a furrier. So a fur coat that he had made her that she wanted to pass on to me. And then she opens up this drawer, this drawer and she goes, look, these hanky pankies are the most comfortable thong underwear in the world, which is right. They are. And she had turned me on to them like 10 years earlier And she said, goodwill won't take them. You shouldn't throw them away. They shouldn't go to waste. Take my panties. 
So, you know, initially the title of the book was My Beautiful Life, My Beautiful Death, (laughs) which is just sounds like such a downer. And I pitched an agent and she very lovingly looked at me and said, Jen, we don't need another misery memoir about cancer. You got to rethink the title. And I was at a conference and I went away and a couple hours later, I went back to her and said, "Okay, how about this? You know, when I die, take my panties. She looked at me. She goes, no one's ever taken my coaching so seriously and so quickly before. Like coach has to take the coaching. So that's where that, that's where that comes from. And my mom really helped me keep my sense of humor through the whole thing. Wow. Yeah. Well, and she's, she was right. They are great underwear. They are great underwear. Right at Nordstrom's. I, I hope they're listening because I would love to have them include a pair of teal hanky pankies when people buy my book to be able to give something back to the ovarian cancer groups that are out there. So hanky pankies, if you're listening, call me. Call me. Now that's actually a really, really good idea. I love that idea. Although you'd have to have a one size fits all. Well, <laughs> oh, they, they are. are. There are. are some. There are some I've seen. Well, yeah, a lot of them are one size fits all. And if you just had a teal pair, you could go with that. Yeah. You know, no match your book cover, right? That's why it's, that's why, cause <laughs> that's, that's the color of ovarian cancer. That's why it's there. And yellow was my mom's favorite color, which is why I use the color yellow. Yeah. Also, yeah. cause I feel like her spirit's with me whenever I'm doing, you know, what I'm doing. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. that's, that, that really is special. I want to ask you some, some other questions and I, and I will make sure to have you reiterate the symptoms again at the end too, because I do think sure. that's really important and also how people can find you. But I want to ask you, I know that you, you have this motto, live in the dash. What, what does that mean? I know you do a lot of coaching. And so what, what does that mean exactly? Well, it actually came from a conversation I had with my mom. So the thing about ovarian cancer, because of where the uterus and the ovaries are situated, it's behind major organs. And so the reason why you have problems urinating is that usually means the cancer has spread to your bladder, or if you have any other problem going to the bathroom or problems eating, it's usually spread to your intestines. And so that's actually what happened to my mom in her final year. And she was faced with having surgery and she, we were at this kind of stopping point. She was in the hospital She willed herself out of the hospital, I swear, because her oncological surgeon left to go to a conference, left her in the hospital and said, when I come back, we're going to have to do surgery unless you're better. And my mom did not want to have surgery. And so she literally willed herself out of the hospital. I went down to visit her and we had three days to find a, an experimental treatment for her. So we found this experimental treatment and I'll tell you, Patty, I never learned so much about the types of drugs you use with cancer and how to look stuff up through NIH. There, there will be, but there is not now a state-based database for clinical trials. So I was searching all over the country and the clinical trial I found for her, her oncological surgeon was heading up and he didn't tell us about it because he felt she was too far gone to be able to participate because it was an experimental oral drug that she would have to take. And because she was having problems with her bowels, he didn't think she would qualify, but I was determined. And so we took her to get tested for the experiment. And when she, when we got back that night from the hospital, she started throwing up and couldn't, couldn't stop. Got her into the emergency room, eventually got her with some morphine about two o'clock in the morning. And she finally was out of pain. And we just had this real heart to heart. We had an agreement. We were going to say everything to each other. And I said to her, I said, mom, you know, it's gotten to the point where you're avoiding dying. There's two dates on your tombstone. There's the date you're born and the date you die and a dash in the middle. You can't live your life avoiding dying. 
See, we're born and each of us has a purpose in this lifetime. God has given us a purpose, or you could say our soul has a purpose, whatever your belief system, the universe has given you a purpose. Our job is to find that and fulfill that. Otherwise, we come back every lifetime to continue to fulfill that. And I told her, I said, you know, when we're born, we're born into this, we, we, we get incarnated into this existence to fulfill that purpose. And then we forget that at some point we're going to die. We forget there's an end date. But in the forgetting, we remember and we get creative and we figure out how to teach kids with learning disabilities and we become great chefs and we become moms and we become great realtors, right? And we find the cure for autism or ovarian cancer, all of that, because we want to be able to live in the dash. That's where life occurs in every moment of now. I always say if I could market my own watch, it would just keep blinking now to remind people to live right now that you have this God-given precious moment. You know, if you have 10 seconds to live, what are you going to do with it? Okay, 10 seconds more to live. What are you going to do with it? And so I said to her, I go, you've got to stop living to avoid dying because you've been doing that for about a month now. I said, she goes, well, what if, what if I have the surgery and, and they realize they have to close me up and send me home? And I said, well, then we know. And if you have 15 days left or two weeks left, we get the four kids and nine grandkids. And at that point, seven great grandkids. And we get together and we have a celebration of you. And we celebrate your life and we love you and we love all on you. And I said, and if they open you up and they're able to do the surgery successfully, then you've got that much more time to live. But if you're going to choose the surgery, mom, I said, you've got to choose to live. You've got to choose to live. And if you choose not to have the surgery, I'll empower that choice, whatever you want. But it really is your choice. And that's what I coach my clients about, too, is it's your choice. Everything is your choice. It's your choice to be a victim. It's your choice to be a bully. It's your choice to feel out of control. It's your choice to try to control none of those things. It's kind of like only having a car with drive in reverse. There's so many more possibilities in life that we don't see when we're either trying to get somewhere or avoiding getting somewhere. And if we can all just remember to live in the dash, life would be so much sweeter. Yeah, you're, you're, you saying that your mom was saying, what if I find clients all the time that will say, what if this, what if that, well, what if this happens? And what if that, well, and then what if, what if, what if, and I always say, stop, I don't deal with what if I deal with what is, and that's what we're going to address. And then if something happens, well, then we'll deal with it. If the problem arises, we'll find a solution. So I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Well, tell us how you use humor so effectively. I'm really curious about that because I know you're just a super funny person. That's your personality. You've, you've done stand-up comedy. Well, tell us, how how do you do that on a daily basis as far as you, especially when you're do- going through a really difficult time? Well, a couple things. One is, you know, when my mom was super sick, I, was, I think it was right after she got, di- I know, maybe it was a couple years after she got diagnosed. I had a great teacher, a stand-up comedy teacher, my mentor. And what she had always mentored me to do was to talk about my own life, which is how I was trained when I used to lead big personal growth and development seminars is my, I've got to have my life always be transforming for me to get out of my own way. So I can cause transformation where you are. If I'm, that's why psychiatrists, I think, and therapists are always in therapy because they're getting out of the way to be able to be there for their patient, their ego, they're getting rid of their ego. And so I said to my friend, I go, "Uh, uh, I don't know about doing, you know, humor about cancer, what if someone's offended? And she looked at me, she goes, Jen, ovarian cancer is offensive. Aren't you offended we don't have a cure? Aren't you offended we don't have a way to detect it? And I said, yeah. 
She said, then offend people. That's okay. Offend people. So it's not like I go around and offend people, number one, but mom and I, <laughs> although some people might think I do, I don't know. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe only, maybe only when it comes to politics. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my mom and I wrote some jokes together for me to perform, but with my clients and with myself, I feel like don't take life personally. Now that's one of Miguel Ruiz and the four agreements. Don't take it personally. I practice and fail at that on a daily basis. Life isn't out to get us. So-and-so is not out to get us. So-and-so didn't do X thing in order to make you feel fill in the blank. Life's just happening. And your reaction to whatever's going on in your life is your soul's journey. Other people's reaction is their journey. So don't ever take on what other people are saying to you. Don't ever take on their reactions. Don't take on whatever they're, however they're trying to make you feel. Well, he's trying to bully me. No, he's not. He's a, he, he may be a bully, but that's his lesson to learn in this lifetime. Your lesson is how you're going to respond to him or her that's bullying you or that experience of being a victim. So now if you can get it's not personal, like, you know, people think life has so much meaning and it's so crazy. It has about as much meaning as the coffee I drink in the morning. I mean, Patty, how do you drink your coffee? Well, I gave up sugar in my coffee. So now I just have two creams. <laughs> two creams. Why don't you drink it black? Yeah. Okay, I can't go that far. Well, no, I you mean, know, like I just, I've, I've gave up the sugar. That's, that's, that's it. enough. Can't give up the cream. <laughs> but that's really right. a black cup of coffee and what you have for breakfast has about as much meaning as somebody cutting you off on the road. They're not cutting you off on the highway to make your life hell. No, they just are whatever, whatever there was going on in their world. They're playing the game called get there faster. I don't know. <laughs> they're playing the game called this is my road, not yours. I don't know. You know, but I think that's where the sense of humor has got to come back in. And, and I really work with my clients, especially during those moments. And I've heard it all over the years. I've coached almost 10,000 people over 20 years. I've heard pretty much everything. And I have so much empathy for people. And my job is to get you back to your happy place. And when we're laughing, we're happy. When we're laughing, we're having fun. And that's when we can get creative about finding solutions because our brain stops being in this lockdown fight or flight and our creative juices begin to flow and we begin to think about, well, maybe, maybe I could find a way to have the down payment on that house. Maybe I could figure out a way to come up with that 30%. Maybe I could figure out a way to, you know, provide X incentive to the seller in order to get what I want or as the seller provide X incentive to the buyer. It's when we're not laughing that our brain gets on lockdown. Well, it, it does seem to be a muscle that, that you have to constantly, you know, utilize and work at. If people look, work at it and they try to go through life and looking at the positive and trying to find the humor, then you're likely going to find it. But I think a lot of people, unfortunately, have a hard time getting to, to that point. They do. They do. And I think you're right. I think it is, I think it is muscle and I think it is practice. But you know what, Patty? If we had only one job, for the rest of our lives, which was to laugh every day, that'd be a pretty cool life. Or if we had only one job, which was to be grateful, to practice gratitude, or to be kind, or to be nice, that's a pretty fulfilling life. Forget all the trappings, forget all the stuff you might have. If you are practicing gratitude or you're practicing being selfless, giving back to your community, boy, that's a heck of a life you've got. Mm-hmm. Well, how, how has 
faith played a role in everything that you've experienced with your mom, with losing her. Tell us about faith and since she's been gone, how that has played a role in your life. I'm a very faithful person. I was raised Jewish. I go to high holiday services. I don't really go to Friday night services anymore, but I, you know, there is funny. One of my adages to people when you find somebody who's been diagnosed with cancer is to empower the patient's choice of treatment because they don't have a choice about the cancer. They have a choice about how they want to be treated, that they wanted to go the chemotherapy route. Do they want to try different foods? What do they want to do? My mom and I used to go to church service on Sunday to a Unity church near here in Florida. And I'm like, did I mention we're Jewish? She used to get hands on healing at the local <laughs> church. Did I mention we're Jewish? You know, I used to pay to Je- yeah. play, pray to Jesus. Did I mention we're Jewish? But look, they're all healers and they're all people that we can have faith in. Probably the hardest thing for me during her, when she died, was I lost faith in myself. Because I've always been someone who, when I said something was going to happen, it did. And there was those moments after after she died, when I went through my, boy, I can't count on God, I can't count on myself, but I came through it. I came through it and I realized at the end that this was her journey, that I, in the way that I believe, I chose to incarnate in this lifetime with this mother who passed away from ovarian cancer to learn lessons about myself and her. She chose this lifetime to have ovarian cancer. I feel you choose it. You choose your lifetime and your incarnation based on what your soul is here to learn and how to grow. But my mother was a scientist, so she wasn't a person of faith. She felt if you couldn't see it, touch it, taste it or smell it, it didn't exist. So forget about it. Through her journey, she became a person of faith. That's why we began to go to church. That's why we began to do hands-on healing. I connected her with a very good friend of mine who's a very gifted, intuitive, and she did work with my mom to help her just feel calmer and connect with God and connect with her higher power. And there were so many times, Patty, for example, the day after my mom had the surgery, I went in to see her. And she goes, all right, I'm going to tell you this, but I can't tell anybody else. I said, okay. She goes, well, I had this dream. And in the dream, there was paintings around my hospital room. And I was stepping in and out of the paintings like they were real. So there was like Matisse's, you know, or I think it was, I forgot whose it was, like the pointillism of the people in the park in France. She goes, I stepped in that painting and I hung out with those people. And I stepped back out. She said, but the number 483 keeps coming to mind. 483, what does it mean? And for her and I, we always believed that when we see numbers repeating, those are angels giving us messages. So I happened to Google 483 and what popped up, and I've never seen it since, it talks about a particular passage from the Bible where this number came up and there was life going one way and it took another turn. And I've never been able to find that passage again, but I showed it to my mom. I read it out loud to her. And so there were things like that that would happen. You know, I was at a metaphysical bookstore and was walking around the bookstore, just feeling my way into what needed to be bought for my mom or myself. And I picked up a piece of Jasper and then read about it. It's to help clean the liver, which is where her cancer had appeared so she could meditate with the Jasper. And then I picked up this book called The Lightworker's Way by Doreen Virtue. And I brought it up to the register and the woman looked at me. She goes, where'd you get that book? I know every book in the store. I've never seen it before. Said it was right over here. Hmm. She looks in the inventory. It wasn't in the inventory. But that book was meant for me 
to learn about how to be a light worker, how to be intuitive, how to work with people. And that's how I work with my clients too, is it's a little bit woo woo for some people, but it really is me connecting with my higher power to be able to work with people to figure out what they want and need. Because often I'll ask questions of people. They're like, that's a really good question. I never thought about it that way. I couldn't tell you where, you know, I know you and I know where the question came from. I'm channeling and there's nothing logical that would have told me to ask that particular question that had nothing to do with whatever situation that they're dealing with in that moment. And how that's impacted me now is during that time with my mom, what I began to recognize was when my left side, your left side is your receiving side, that's your female side, your feminine side, your right side is your male side, but your left side is your receiving side. Whenever I would get an intuitive hit and it was right, my left bicep gets hot or warm. So I've sat with people and given them information and said to them, I know this is for you and I know this is real because my left arm is burning up. And so I began to trust my intuition and trust myself. And that's why I can say I chose this lifetime for this journey because that was an aspect of myself I hadn't, I knew was there for a long time, but hadn't wanted to tap into it. And now I bring it into the coaching that I give people and I bring it into conversations with people in a way I wouldn't have had, I wouldn't have before, before my mom got sick. Mm -hmm. I can totally relate to that in a lot of ways. My father passed away six years ago and it's funny because every day I'm going about my business, not, not that it happens every day, but it happens often. And I'll be just going about my business. And I know that whenever he pops in my head, especially when I'm not thinking about him, I'm just going about my business. I know that's the sign he's there. I know he's there with me. And that happens a lot. It happens, you know, all over the place. I could be doing anything. And especially when I'm doing something that I'm, you know, really focused on work or I'm focused at what, having a conversation with somebody and all of a sudden he pops in my head. It's like, oh, hi, dad. I know he's there. It's, it's very cool. So, you know, no matter when you lose somebody, you, you never really lose them. They're still right there. In fact, I often think that I have more of a relationship in some strange way with my dad now that he's gone because he was always, he, he lived, you know, out in the Midwest and I didn't see him very often. So, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting, but tell us just to kind of wrap it up. Tell us again, if you would, kind of the main symptoms for women to look for or husbands or, or whatever that, that they notice their wife may be having some symptoms or girlfriends and, uh, and also how they can get in touch with you or, you know, find you. Yeah. I mean, anybody that knows a woman, anybody that knows a woman can handle these symptoms, I always say. So you want to remember the acronym BEAT like you beat a drum. Not that you eat. Don't eat a beat, but beat your drum. B for bloating. E, eating, meaning you feel full quicker or you're not as hungry. A, abdominal pain. Sometimes it can be lower pack pain, but generally abdominal pain. And then T, trouble urinating. You can't go as much. You feel like you've got to go more often. So B-E-A-T, bloating, eating, abdominal pain, trouble urinating. If you have all four of these uninterrupted for two weeks and no change in diet or exercise during those two weeks mitigates your symptoms, go to your gynecologist and say, prove to me, I don't have ovarian cancer. You can get the symptom card and the tracker on my website, jencoken.com, J-E-N-C-O-K-E-N.com. When you go to that website, click on the menu item that says book. And on there, you can open up the symptom card and right click it and download it to your computer along with the symptom tracker as well. And my book's available online and at any major bookstore. 
Wow, that's amazing. So they can buy your book, which is When I Die, Take My Panties. Yep. Turning Your Darkest Moments and Your Greatest Gifts. And just so you know, it's not a bummer of a book. You laugh, you cry. It was better than cats. You know, <laughs> um, I find it's really helpful for people that have gone through grief of any loved one. They Because sometimes we feel so alone and we think nobody really understands. But I'm very open about what I went through and, and what I've heard from people. And I didn't set out to write the book this way. But I've heard from people that they were really able to bring closure to some of the grief they've had. But it also teaches you, gives you some specific lessons in the back of the book about how to practice living in the moment. And then it also educates women about ovarian cancer, too, as well. Well, thank you so much for all the work that you're doing regarding this topic. And thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Can't wait to, to see you live and in person again. <laughs> I know. Thanks, you too. Yes. Yeah, so this wraps up the Pitbull Patty episode. And I just want to say... I like to say this all the time, create your own master plan, because if you fail to plan, you are planning to fail. My father used to say that all the time. He didn't make that up. I'm sure some some famous person somewhere originally said that. But I like to say it because people don't realize, you know, if you're if you're just ruddering around in the water, what do they say? Rudderless with no no direction. Yeah. You're you're not going anywhere. So you really gotta yep. create that plan, have some forethought about your life, what you want to do with it. And I can see what you're what you're doing with yours is very obvious and, and oh, so helpful to, to so many women. So we'll we'll see you soon. All right. Thanks, Patty. Thanks All for right. having me on so much. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.